Welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty, an industry podcast for loyalty marketing professionals. I'm your host, Paula Thomas, and if you work in loyalty marketing, join me every week to learn the latest ideas from loyalty specialists around the world. This show is brought to you by the Loyalty and Awards Conference, the leading annual event for loyalty professionals in the travel industry. Make sure to join us this year from the 10th to the 12th of October in Madrid for the perfect mix of inspiring content and exciting awards. Check out loyaltyandawards.com for more information and to register. Hello and welcome to episode 263 of Let's Talk Loyalty. Featuring a long overdue catch-up conversation with Simon Rolls, Managing Director of Beyond, a customer experience consulting firm based in Sydney, Australia. With a single-minded focus on identifying, evaluating and implementing the best global solutions to create compelling loyalty concepts, Simon is someone I always enjoy talking to to get an idea of some of the latest emerging loyalty and customer experience trends. In today's conversation, Simon, of course, talks about data, but no longer just as the new oil, but now as an even more powerful and profitable asset as it's becoming increasingly shareable. And that's despite our increasingly restrictive privacy laws worldwide. Simon also shares some incredible performance statistics around a way to drive customer or employee loyalty using the power of fractional ownership. He also talks about the increasingly important option to allow loyalty members to aggregate the rewards across multiple programs. For everyone listening, I know you love hearing about customer strategy and innovative loyalty propositions. So please do enjoy listening to Simon Rose from Beyond in Australia and some of the inspiring ideas his team are exploring. So, Simon, welcome back to Let's Talk Loyalty. Thank you, Paula. Uh, a pleasure to be back and congratulations on your wedding. Thank you so much, Simon. Yes, I think uh, it's been an extraordinary time. So certainly the highlight of I don't know how many years of uh, planning and looking forward. So yes, it was interesting to share it on LinkedIn. Not something I would have thought I would have done before, but it seems like it's the Wild West now of sharing everything in our lives on LinkedIn. So thank you for your for your kind words. And thank you for being here, Simon. I know you're in the UK less than 48 hours ago. So to show up for Let's Talk Loyalty when you're probably suffering from all sorts of jet lag and all sorts is very much appreciated. Thank you, Paula. I don't know if I'm suffering from jet lag, but that'll come out in the next few minutes, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. If you start rambling, we'll shut you up. Grant, well, listen, Simon, as you know, uh, first of all, it's been two years since you were on the show last time. So we will touch back on that. But one of the big changes that I made in that couple of years was our opening question is, is quite different to what we did before. So with all of your expertise, insights there in the Australian-New Zealand market, uh, please do tell me, what is your current favorite loyalty program, Simon? It's, it was a hard question to answer because at first I thought, what's my favorite loyalty program? And there's some I like and there's some I, I don't. 
But professionally, the one I really do like is Commonwealth Bank has launched a whole of bank program called Yellow. And we've been waiting for whole of bank programs to explode around the world. They haven't really. Um, mm. E-Bucks in South Africa, perhaps. Uh, Axis in India, perhaps. Um, but Commonwealth has gone at uh, boots and all. They have uh, leveraged the open infrastructure, the customer data right. We have open banking. We've got open in other categories as well, including, uh, including telco and utility. They've bought into a telco. They've bought into utility. And that becomes part of your rewards set under yellow in the Commonwealth Bank um, app. And uh, it's a reward for being a customer. They're not asking you to go and spend more money. Mm. And it's going to apply to all of their customers across the board. So they don't just have to fund it out of banking margin. They're funding it out of all sorts of other margins from other industries and probably making the merchant-funded piece work more effectively than anybody else in Australia. So from a professional perspective, Mm. they've bundled almost all the current themes and loyalty into one program. Wow. My goodness. I mean, the complexity, the mind boggles, Simon. I mean, we're all familiar with the the old reliables, of course, and banking loyalty. But to get it across the whole bank, I mean, it must have been years in in development. When did it actually launch there, Simon? It's launched earlier this year. It's announced actually earlier this year and it launches later in the year. It launches for home loan customers on a new home loan product first and then rolls to the rest of the bank. Okay. Um, And I think... I don't know that it's years in production. It's probably years in thinking, but the yeah. market's moved and, and open banking just makes a whole lot of things possible. And if you're brave and bold yeah. and you leverage uh, the customer data right in industries outside of your own as a bank, yeah. you go and buy into those categories. Uh, all of a sudden, I'm sure uh, it looked simple on paper, but probably very complex yeah. uh, under the water, getting all the pieces joined up. Absolutely. Yeah. No, and you're absolutely right, Simon. I mean, we all know, uh, you know, the risk of overstating it. We've been through a tumultuous few years. It was April 2020 when you were last talking with this on the show here. Um, but I would love to just get your, your perspective in terms of in that two years, what do you think has happened with, with loyalty in general? And again, particularly, I guess, in your own market, but even from a global perspective, I mean, I feel you know, to me, it certainly has been kind to our industry. I always feel that loyalty is counter-cyclical. And um, many of my listeners will know I got into loyalty just after the big recession of 2008. And to your point earlier, actually, you know, brands that are brave uh, do see an opportunity when there's a crisis, uh, particularly globally. So just give us a sense of what's been happening in the loyalty market there in Australia, New Zealand in the last couple of years. It's, it's a very good question, and yes, I would, I would agree. We are counter-cyclical, but we've seen an explosion in loyalty in our part of the world, certainly Australia, also New Zealand, with new programs launching at probably the rate of one a month, uh, wow. and in some months at one a week. Wow. So the adoption has been uh, off the charts, but we've also seen um, a struggle with complexity. So there's a lot of new loyalty managers coming to market there's a lot of new loyalty models coming to market yeah. and they don't know how to navigate it. Um, so we've also seen a whole lot of new suppliers come to market. So we've had more loyalty platform vendors coming to Australia in the last year than ever before. 
Mm. Uh, all the new programs have been won by internationals coming to town for the first time. Mm. And there's a host of new innovations and bolt-ons and orbiting solutions that are starting to take off that historically I think would have really struggled. But yeah. Perhaps doing everything over screens from any part of the world became normalised and that's made it more possible. But certainly the demand is there and the investment's going in. Wow. Um, the move away from travel possibly helped it a bit because the airlines are the, are the centre of gravity of the Australian loyalty market and yeah. with no one travelling. Some brands, I think, started to think that there might be a world outside of frequent flyer points for mm -hmm. their programs if they weren't an airline, uh, mm. retailers, banks, and there's been a lot of development there. We've seen a lot of activity uh, in some businesses where they put big teams on to build mm. up new loyalty propositions under the water that are now coming to fruition now that the pandemic's yeah. started to be a normal thing. Yeah, yeah. And I guess only time will tell if all of those um, innovative new propositions are welcomed by consumers, because I always think there's there's the risk of obviously fatigue and, and confusion. So, you know, it'll be down to exactly how they're executed, I guess, in terms of how, how they land and what actually really does resonate with customers. That's a very good point. And one of the key differentiators, I think, is these are not niche fun plays that apply to only a portion of the base but have good press coverage or good shareholder coverage in the annual reports. Mm. Most of these are scaled plays across the very big programs, mm. which have several million customers, mm. and they're advances on the core proposition. So they're not fly-by-night, mm -hmm. and they look to be really, really well-structured against a good foundation. Mm. You're quite right. Time will tell whether they yeah. do pay off. Yeah, but we're already seeing competitive responses to the same thing, so uh, that for me is an indicator that whoever moved first uh, got something right if the competitors are following them. Yeah, yeah, my goodness, super exciting, Simon. I always love hearing what's going on, um, and you know, for people who maybe didn't get to listen to your last show, the reason I always love talking to you is, I guess, that you, I suppose, really enjoy innovative propositions. You specialize, I suppose, in identifying, you know, global best practice and representing that, and bringing it to the Australian market in many cases. Would that be a fair summary of how you how you would see your your business and your services. That would be an exceptional summary, and you probably <laughs> said it better, better than I could. That is true. Uh, I, I would add that it's not just innovations, but it's innovations that have been adopted by a major player offshore. Okay. So a large bank like a Barclays, which yeah. gives it some credence and weight, but also means the innovation's been through the pain and suffering of a procurement process <laughs> with a big enterprise and knows totally. how to play with one of the big um, uh, Aussie enterprises. Totally. But yeah. I think the problem we're facing at the moment is velocity. There are so many of them being adopted offshore and making it through those gates, those disciplines, Yeah. that it's becoming quite hard, particularly for a new loyalty manager who's just for the first time seeing what a points program looks like, yeah. to be able to filter their way through the tools that make sense now and the tools that will make sense in three years' time as their program scales. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely good point. And again, quite remarkable to hear that that level of um, innovation and opportunity is is around and, and coming forward. Um, and clearly you're advising all of your clients and all of that. 
I always love, love to come at it from the, I suppose, the consumer perspective, because with my, I suppose, marketing mindset, I, I, I don't really understand the technology in the same way that other people do. But I always believe that if I'm excited as a consumer, then I can always figure out the tech and, and find the pieces to build it. So with all of that kind of idea and mindset, Simon, what would you say are the most compelling opportunities for loyalty professionals to be thinking about beyond our traditional earn and burn that we love so well? The earn and burn is always going to make sense. Um, and I think we're not looking for things that are completely different to that. This industry is not going to be wiped out okay. um, by <laughs> whatever comes next. Uh, yeah. It's not TVs are going to replace movies. Okay. But I think it's uh, very much in the foundations of, of the data. So historically, we've had loyalty coalitions, which are fundamentally enterprises which offer the same currency, but really underneath was a data sharing play. You joined a loyalty coalition, so you could sell your product to the other coalition partners. Mm. And we've seen them struggle all over the world unless they're owner-operated. But the principle remains, companies want to collaborate. Mm. And we've had several goes at data coalitions, customer data, outside of loyalty coalitions, with possibly the most famous for our part of the world in Australia being a company called Data Republic. Brilliant idea. Banks, retailers, airlines, everyone pouring their customer data in the bucket. Mm. And you could learn all sorts of things that you couldn't learn otherwise. And you could market much better because data is yeah. the heart of uh, the whole loyalty game. And we had this theory that data is the new oil. Well, Data Republic crashed. And I think one of the reasons it crashed is data isn't the new oil. That was a... Um, uh, Clive Humby uh, saying from 2006, and yeah. he was right at the time, Yeah, but it's changed. Customer data really is more like plutonium than oil, and uh, it doesn't get used up. You can use it again and again, and every time you use it, it makes new things. So we're more and more starting to lean on to the theory that customer data is the new nuclear waste. You've got to dispose of it. You've got to look after it. It's dangerous. You've got to protect it. No one really knows what's going on with privacy laws. Yeah. Uh, there was GDPR, but that's changing. Mm. Uh, California stepped in. I think Ireland has said all those pop-ups on your uh, yeah. websites don't count anymore. Mm. And Data Republic crashed because the part we believe uh, the partners got scared. What does this happen? What happens if this gets to the front page of the paper? Well. Customer data is the new nuclear waste. We've now got an answer. Um, historically, you used to be able to encrypt data at rest. You used to be able to encrypt data while it moved, but you had to open it up and see that that was Paula's details when you were analysing it. Mm. The new technologies uh, that have come to market now, and we've seen two launch in Australia, and there's several in the UK, mm. uh, encrypt at rest. So even if you're hacked, even if you've got bad actors, even if your analysts aren't doing what they should be doing, you have no risk. Uh, there's processes that wrap around that uh, mm. in terms of the governance. So it's now possible for the first time ever, really, for two companies who have customer data to share that customer data and work out things that they may not have worked out before. The only thing you have to have is the customer's permission to do it. But that does mean you get much richer offers out in front of customers. And an example, Barclays and Vodafone in the UK collaborates. Vodafone knew who their handset customers were, mm. but they didn't know if a customer also had a broadband contract with a competitor. 
And working with Barclays, they were able to work that out. And Barclays was able to put an offer in front of that Vodafone customer to say, wow. you're with a competitor of Vodafone, not in wow. as many words, here's yeah. an offer for you. Vodafone went from one product to two, two products per customer is always going to be better, basket size is up, retention goes up. Uh, and we're seeing that happening across the board as this new technology moves away from anti-money laundering and so on where it first started and mm. scales to be able to match customer data. And it means you can run your own loyalty coalition with your own currency across several different companies. You have different currencies. You don't even have to announce it as a coalition, but mm. you can collaborate with partners that make sense. Mm. We've got a telco and a supermarket that want to do that uh, and not let their competitors know what's going on. But it just mm. means your first party data gets better. But one thing you need to have is the customer's permission that you can do that. And most loyalty programs, and probably only in loyalty programs, have a rule that says, mm. and we've checked most T's and C's for the big ones in our part of the world, mm. we will use your customer data to give you offers from our partners. Mm. Yes, I think that has been explicitly built in so much. My goodness, Simon. It's absolutely mind-blowing that that level of um, solution, I guess, has emerged, you know, in the context of GDPR because, I mean, we all know you literally can't even raise the, the word data, certainly in any program I ever worked on, without the legal people being wheeled in um, absolutely to, to forbid. As you said, Ireland is often the hotbed of regulation around it, but sounds like everybody's actually getting comfortable with this idea. Everybody getting comfortable with the idea is probably not quite where it's at at the moment. Okay. But some brave players are getting comfortable with it. So particularly amongst our banks, we've got this theory that uh, the transaction is the new cookie. Okay. So whatever you did, and the bank knows what you did because they've got your transactional data, defines who you are. And mm -hmm. retailers are very interested in what that data is. We have uh, from three of our banks launches of capabilities which fundamentally monetize their transactions. Uh, the transaction does become the new cookie. It identifies who you are. They yeah. can find you, a retailer and a bank can find you and they can make an offer to you. Now, it's not widespread and these are, these are recent launches. Okay. So Westpac is one of our big four banks. They launched a, a program called DataX. Mm -hmm. uh, ANZ is another of our big banks. They have partnered with their venture division to launch a thing called Data Co. Mm -hmm. And our biggest bank, Commonwealth Bank, the guys who are launching my favorite yellow program, mm. they've had a collaboration for some time with Australia's version of Dunhambi called Quantium. Mm. All of them are looking to play this first-party data game in a sharing fashion. Not all of them use the same technology I've just mentioned, mm. but we do know that one of them do. And one of them, uh, and, and it's Westpac, they've said, we will help you, our corporate clients, our retailers, will help you launch loyalty programs because we can match our two sets of data together. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly, you know, yes, absolutely. I think banks are the most risk averse, in fact. So even if others haven't yet spotted the opportunity, I think if the banking sector has found ways to be comfortable that they're protecting all of the relevant interests, um, that's absolutely extraordinary growth. So definitely one that uh, seems to be uh, exploding for you. Um, I suppose, you know, thinking about it from a consumer perspective, 
that explicit permission piece that you mentioned, Simon, do you think that is clear enough for the consumer? Do you think that we're, you know, opting into things that perhaps we mightn't, you know, because I think we all kind of ignore the terms and conditions. We tick all the boxes and, you know, we, we trust the brand, I think, to take responsibility for us, but we don't really understand the detail. So what level of comfort do you have that consumers really do understand what's happening behind the scenes? It's probably, it's good. It's a good question. It's probably varied because some customers and some programs will understand and have an expectation. Mm. But of course, we know that not all our customers are the same. Yeah. So some won't and some will be surprised when suddenly an offer arrives from another, another partner. Yeah. So I think it's going to be, it's going to be widely spread. So from fully expecting it all the way through to hating the idea that it might ever happen for customers. The same will be true of the executives sitting inside the enterprise. And we've seen that in terms of these launches from our banks in Australia, we've seen exactly the same reaction amongst the executives. I would hate if this ever happened and I'm thinking of myself as the only customer in the world all the way through to I've been expecting this for years. And obviously an overlay of, is this legal and are we allowed to do this? Yeah. And, you know, how desperate am I to get my numbers? Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess we have all been trained and, you know, we, we've seen enough of the, the cookie tracking, I suppose, to to not be surprised anymore. So I guess it's, you know, when I think about myself in that situation, I probably would be a little surprised in the, in the uh, initial, um, the first time I might see it. But again, it comes back to the brand trust and how it's presented um, and managed to to see if I'm comfortable continuing that relationship, I guess. Yes, it's a minefield. The, the privacy game <laughs> is a, a complete minefield. Totally. So you would have to, as a brand, as part of your engagement, I think, ensure yeah. that you've got explicit permission to be doing this. And that yeah. would um, that would help some of the executives in the enterprise to feel more comfortable that there's explicit permission for this particular piece yeah. to be getting uh, a Vodafone offer from a Barclays, yeah. uh, as an example. But in, in other instances, potentially the airline frequent flyer programs, which are the most aggressive and best users of some of this data, it yeah. wouldn't be any surprise at all, and, and they'd move quite quickly. Yeah. But to be to be clear, these things have all launched. They're all available. They all run in pilot. But we haven't yeah. seen a huge scaled version of it. Okay. But we have this fabulous solution to an existing problem, and the two are going to be drawn together you know, by gravity. We can't see it not happening. Totally, totally. I can hear that. And I'm just smiling as I think about your data is the nuclear waste, um, you know, analogy. So definitely one to watch out for and and probably the right way to frame it, Simon. I agree that it's absolutely, um, it has to be handled with that level of concern um, in order for it to deliver properly. Uh, But the stakes are super high. So everybody's got a vested interest. I can imagine now if I was sitting in a bank um, and, and spotting this as a business opportunity, it does seem, as you said, inevitable and um, and very exciting. So hopefully that's one that uh, we continue to see uh, growing. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I mean, it's it's fairly well deployed in the UK already. Um, okay. Uh, Boots have used it. Uh, TSB have used it. Lloyd's have used it. So it's not uncommon. Uh, it's starting to mainstream as a marketing play. Okay. But the beauty for all of us who are loyalty professionals is we are the only ones who have explicit permission from customers to yeah. make offers from partners. Yeah, for sure. 
Okay, so moving on then beyond uh, the data play, what's happening, would you say, Simon, in the reward space um, for the, the kind of projects you're looking at? Several things all at the same time. And to go back to your foundation of earn and burn, the, the burn still needs to happen, rewards still need to happen. Uh, mm. Several movements there. We're seeing, because of the explosion of programs, as a customer, you have an explosion of points. And because of the explosion of card linking and other good tools, mm. you're not able to opt out or ignore them. They're starting to automatically accrue them. What do you do with all these buckets of minor points balances in different programs. We've seen two or three plays come to market, but the first to really do it was a points.com type play, which has always existed in travel, starting to appear in retail and banks and TD in Canada and Starbucks have a swapping mechanism, much like you might have switched your frequent flyer points for hotel. Mm -hmm. You can now switch TD to to Starbucks. Mm. We've seen that happen on a wider uh, scale though with new offerings. And again, not heavily... um, adopted from a company in the US called Bact and a company in the UK called Swappy, letting you bundle all those points together into a single balance. Mm. And obviously, you have to get every program that's potentially a collaborator to allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. But we've seen in terms of introducing those models to Australian clients, strong appetite to play because there's an upside to them in terms of switching their points to to different currencies. As a customer, though, you can see the win. I Mm. take my whole digital life uh, back to goes as far as adding um, crypto as does Swappy. My whole digital life, which is loyalty points, gaming points, crypto, whatever else it might be, gift cards, and bundling them into a single balance. Mm. Wow. Okay. Nice and simple. And that's live in market already, Simon, you said? They are both in pilot in their parts of the world. Um, okay. I'm not sure how much is public yet. Uh, and most of them lean quite heavily on, on certainly backed leads quite heavily on crypto. Crypto mm. is a bit of an unusual one we find mm. because uh, you're either a, a massive supporter or a massive denier. <laughs> and there's cases to be made either way. We're seeing a good one sitting in the middle being a company in Australia called Upstreet, which instead of you issuing points or crypto, you issue something in the middle called a fractional share in the company that you're shopping. And they've proved very, very successful with some of the metrics that they've deployed in terms of reduction in churn and uplift in revenue by giving customers a share in the company that they're shopping. Wow. So they've run a trial with a subscription business, which, as you can imagine, most of the subscription businesses we know outside of a Spotify, Netflix, a very high churn. Yeah. They chopped churn by 48%. Wow. Now, that's a nice number if you're a loyalty manager. Yeah. Um, and giving away a share in your own company, and it wouldn't be a whole share each time, it would be a piece of a whole share if you think about how small a loyalty reward would be, um, means the customer becomes more loyal to you. So that's part of the churn. They also raised revenue per customer 36%. Wow. because of a whole bunch of better behaviours inside that. So as a, as a loyalty manager, those are two numbers that you would really like. Yeah. And you're not giving away somebody else's currency, like a mm. coalition. You're not giving away a toaster or a TV. Yeah. giving away a piece of your company. So these customers become owners in your own enterprise. And we're seeing strong 
strong demand, I won't say demand, but very strong interest. We haven't seen mm-hmm. any major adoption. We've seen strong retailer adoption. We think it's time for, for bank adoption. And again, okay. a bundling of your wealth life, your retirement mm. savings together with these incremental pieces that you can earn. Yeah. Uh, strong theory that it applies heavily to younger members of the market. They may mm-hmm. not be able to buy a house, but they can earn a share in Tesla. Wow. So I was going to ask exactly that. What kind of categories is it appearing? Is it, uh, it sounds like retail, yeah? Heavily retail. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, most retailers have always given away their own product. Now they're giving away a piece yeah. of their own business. Yeah. Also professional services. So Upstreet have some good cases where they have employee loyalty programs mm-hmm. and the employee, instead of getting uh, 50 bucks on their birthday and 100 bucks at Christmas, and I, and I forget the categories, so I've made yeah. those up, they're yeah. getting pieces of the company. They're getting shares in the company as rewards for whatever the good behaviour is or whatever the, whatever the anniversaries are. Yeah. And they're seeing much stronger interest in those rewards than historically they would have. Mm. With the one case that uh, Upstreet mentioned was during a blackout period for that company where they had a lot of trade shares. Somebody had hit an award level, expected their 25 bucks worth of shares and didn't <laughs> get them. Yeah. And we're all over Upstreet to say, but I've earned them, give them to me. But in the wow. blackout period, obviously, they can't yeah. trade, so they had to wait a few days for their award. Yeah. That's fairly high uh, attractiveness, I think, for an employee award. Totally. Well, when it comes to stickiness, Simon, you know, I can't imagine, you know, many propositions really competing with ownership of the company, even if it is fractional. And again, I, I don't have the bandwidth this morning to figure out exactly how how big you would want that to get either as an employer or as a loyalty program operator. But clearly those people putting a lot of great thinking into it. And what I always love, again, is this idea that if it's a simple, compelling proposition, then automatically everything else kind of falls in place behind it when the proposition makes such clear sense. I'd agree. Uh, It is a difficult one to explain first time around. But we do find with the younger cohort in Australia, they understand their investing game. Not all of them, of course. Meme stock helped them get there. Yeah. But being able to earn a piece of a share of a company is always going to be better than uh, something disposable. It's also, we're also seeing the same cohort, in fact, have a strong interest in, in ESG and particularly carbon. Sure. So we're seeing some very good carbon-related rewards coming to market. And one that if you were to write it down and explain it, you'd think the attractiveness would be very low, but we're seeing the attractiveness being very high mm. is much like a fractional share in a company, it's a fractional share in a carbon credit. So in Australia, mm. as a polluter, uh, a mine or, or similar, uh, you have to buy carbon credits before you do whatever it is you're going to do as the yeah. offset. Yeah. We have a, um, a very successful startup coming to market called Beta Carbon, uh, and we're seeing strong demand from our retail clients for their offering. And the offering is you get a, a fractional piece of a carbon credit, an Australian carbon credit, mm-hmm. as a customer. Mm-hmm. And we see the demand coming from the younger cohort because what that means is you're earning over time as rewards from your favourite apparel retailer mm. pieces of a carbon credit that you're then going to sit on for the rest of your life. And what that means is the polluter can't buy it and the polluter can't pollute. So in a way, you're stopping the polluter 
making the planet any worse. Wow. Now, as I said, if you'd written that on a piece of paper a year ago and said, how <laughs> oh, is this for a plan? You would have struggled. <laughs> well, I'm writing it down to... as, you're, as you're telling us, Simon, I'm sitting there going, oh my goodness, wow. But, but what I am loving, I suppose, is, you know, again, understanding, first of all, the demographic that these ideas are appealing to, because, you know, if we think about, you know, fractional ownership, you know, just to go back to that one for a minute, I would have assumed it was perhaps our generation. So, you know, people, you know, who who understand, you know, buying and selling of shares, you know, so for that younger demographic to be so tuned into the opportunity and with the carbon credit idea to actually prevent a company from, you know, polluting long term, that's an extraordinary insight and an extraordinary level of power to give to a consumer. Again, even in its tiny fraction, sometimes I feel like with loyalty, you just have to give people the idea that they're making a difference, that they actually do buy into that. And then the word of mouth piece grows. And I mean, we all know that ESG is, is, is a massive opportunity anyway, in terms of like it has to, things have to change quite dramatically. So I love the fact that that's something that people can feel that they're, they're you know, signing up to long term and changing behavior long term. I agree. It's 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 exceptional, and that possibly is one of the major changes over the last couple of years is the attitude, certainly from large corporates. And some of our, I mean, we discovered Beer Carbon through a client who wants to offer it as a reward in their program that they're about to launch, mm. and they have just become a B Corp. Okay. So. They're very serious about what it is that they're doing for the planet. Mm. Um, yet to be seen how well uh, a fraction of a carbon credit behaves as a reward compared to whatever else they might give away along the classic lines. Yeah. But there will be a segment uh, that give it a go. Hopefully it's a big enough segment to, yeah. to make it meaningful and comparable. Yeah. Um, and while we talk a big enough segment, um, we're also seeing the banks offering the capability for you to track your carbon footprint. Uh, NatWest launched it last year. Mm -hmm. uh, Commonwealth Bank, the developers of the Yellow program, my favorite program, have launched it this year. Okay. It's been a pilot for a part of a year and will be offered to the whole base. They've got close enough to 10 million customers towards the end of the year. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a bank in New Zealand, Kiwi Bank, which is also a B Corp, will be doing the same. Now, that's not a loyalty program, but what we're seeing for bank loyalty is that the app is the loyalty program. The better your app, the better the services in your yeah. app. Forget the points and prizes and all the other wonderful stuff yeah. we as loyalty professionals know about. The better your app, the better your retention, which mm. is where many of the uh, neo banks in the UK have gone. Yeah. And many of the big banks have then had to follow. And Barclays mm -hmm. is a good example of putting all the wonderful stuff that a neobank like a Monzo might do mm. into their app. Um, Commonwealth is doing the same. They rank the best app in Australia by Forrester. And this mm -hmm. is one more service that sits inside their app that will be adopted by a percentage of their base who really mm. appreciate being able to track their carbon footprint. So it is purely, you know, in my mind, it sounds like a CSR initiative then, Simon, like just being useful for, for the sake of, of, you know, impressing the customer and driving that utility, as you said, for, for the app itself. I think so. Absolutely. 
And Kogo works because it can see your transactions. So your shopping at this retailer caused this much of a carbon footprint and your fuel purchase caused a much bigger carbon footprint. It gives you the opportunity to offset them. Mm. Uh, but yes, it's utility in the app for those people who would want it. And it would have to come from a bank because yeah. externally uh, you wouldn't, you'd be able to do it, but you wouldn't get the scale. So the fact that three banks have scaled it across their whole customer base means there must be some demand from customers. Yeah. And there must be some utility. And they then differentiate it from their competitors in terms of the features that roll into their apps. Yeah. But I also, it, it sounds to me like a very clever solution to go back to my, you know, ideal world of simplifying things for consumers. You know, if you can track and report my carbon credit based on my purchasing behavior, and I'm not having to understand how to account for all of that, because, you know, I think we've probably both seen technology that allowed you to track your carbon credit, but you had to input the data, for example. So, I mean, honestly, that was just not something that was ever going to work for me. So, so I love that the banks are facilitating that. And again, as a consumer, I can quite simply say, okay, yeah, if I took a load of flights this month, it's definitely going to impact. So I guess that I'm more motivated to, to find ways to solve that. And yeah, I, I would trust that bank that that's giving me that data a bit more. I'd agree. Uh, and I think to a as an addition, to a degree, the bank has to play that game because they're sitting in the middle. But yeah. the real demand is coming out of uh, the retailers and particularly mm. their apparel retailers. So there's a multitude of initiatives coming out of their apparel retailers. who are some of the worst polluters in the world yeah. because of the rate at which uh, clothing is deployed around the world and sure. how little of it gets used and how fast it gets changed. And yeah. fast fashion, if you're a sustainability um, watcher, has a lot to answer for. So we're seeing multitudes of different sustainable plays being deployed as loyalty plays, not just as a don't feel so guilty, but as yeah. a here's what's better for the planet. Now, mm. One of them is a startup in Sydney called Renter, and they add a button on a website that lets an apparel brand rent out their clothing more than once. So you might only wear it 10 times. Mm -hmm. uh, your friend might wear it 10 times, and somebody you've never met quite wears it 10 times through Renter, the the whole process gets managed. So it's not something that's going to go to landfill. Mm -hmm. um, and there's several other plays around the world that try and make a secondary market out of clothing. Uh, Reflaunt, which comes out of Europe, but also has a base in, in Singapore, does the same thing. Mm. And that then becomes the loyalty program, uh, the loyalty offering for that enterprise, for that particular cohort who have a very strong view about sustainability. And their view we see being pushed by the retailer because the retailer knows they can't flog any more goods yeah. and are now stepping into a far more um, responsible position, becoming B Corps themselves mm. and doing something about the things that this cohort cares about. Well, having just worn a very expensive wedding dress that clearly needs, uh, you know, another purpose in life, Simon, I'm hoping somebody listening is either already doing that in the, the wedding dress sector, dare I say it, but 
But, you know, joking aside, I genuinely believe that I will take my dress to um, somewhere where it can be, you know, uh, re-loved and reworn. And absolutely to me, that's important. So fast fashion, I agree, is something that I have enjoyed my whole life. I still enjoy it, dare I say it. But there is an element of awareness now that I can't really in good conscience continue to shop at the same way without some adjustment in terms of either the retailer's behavior or my behavior to make that more sustainable. So these guys are tapping into exactly that, that there's now something that can be done. It doesn't necessarily have to go to landfill. I think today much of it does go to landfill. Sure. But there are ways in which you might buy differently and ways in which you might dispose differently. Now, the back end of dispose is a very hard game. Mm. And what we're seeing for some of the retailers, even closer up the cycle, is even returns as a hard game. I think... Mm. uh, Target has just introduced a fee for returns because they're just trying to slow that down Yeah, because being able to process them is, is very difficult. Now, I might have that wrong. It might not be Target. Okay. But just returns of goods in general is a problem um, mm. for, for many of these retailers. So that whole cycle is a problem for, for many of them. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. So listen, we can't possibly, I suppose, not briefly chat, let's say, about some of the um, the other kind of crazy stuff that we're all excited about and really don't yet understand, dare I say. So I'm sure you get asked about NFTs. We've briefly touched on crypto in one context, but what's your, um, I suppose, short version in terms of, you know, what's the, the role of NFTs to drive loyalty? That's a tough question. Uh, there's <laughs> Sorry. Not a, so, <laughs> I'm not an expert and uh, and I do defer to the experts, some of which you've had on your show, and I'd recommend them to anybody who's got the same question. Sure. In the loyalty work that we've been doing, there's uh, the outlandish, of course, mm-hmm. but there's some applicable concepts that we're still trying to understand and work our way through. So one of them is an NFT as a membership token for rights within a loyalty program. And we see some of those have some legs. No, mm. We haven't seen anything scale, of course. Yeah. And these are new applications of things that didn't exist before. It's not a better version of uh, okay. something that exists today. These are new applications. And we're trying to work out, as the rest of the world is trying to work out what these are. But we have seen some real applications of the real play uh, before they were called NFTs, but these are digital assets. And uh, Block V is a company that works with Ben and & Jerry's. And Ben and & Jerry's for, I think, perhaps their 10th anniversary, one of their anniversaries in Australia, launched what they didn't know was an NFT, but was an NFT, mm. which was a virtual twin of an ice cream. And with okay. your phone, you could head to the beach and you could find an ice cream. There was only one, and it was unique. And you could take that ice cream into a Ben & Jerry's store and get a free version of the real version of that ice cream. There's a wow. beer version in Australia as well. Okay. Um, and in that instance, we're seeing them work very well. We know Vodafone have done very similar work in London, doing exactly the same thing, being able to find PlayStations and so on, and yeah. convert them into the real thing. Yeah. Uh, so those are real, but... The minor problem with them is they're not loyalty. Those are acquisition or advertising. Those are bringing people in the front door. Of course, you're going to get a name and an email address to go with whatever it is that you're doing. Mm. But we do like those ones because those are real and you can point 
to how it might perform mm. rather than having to bet very big on something that uh, hasn't played out yet. Yeah. Yeah, that's super fun. Yeah, and I'm smiling to myself because beer, ice cream, and PlayStations. I mean, <laughs> you know, absolutely. You lose. Maybe it's the category. Maybe it's exactly. the category and not the NFT. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it doesn't sound very affordable or scalable, but it's definitely, as you said, it's a it's a publicity driver. It's um, you know, word of mouth. It's fun, bit of gamification. So great stuff. We'll definitely have to stay uh, in touch and follow up. I'm sure there'll be plenty more next time we talk, Simon. So listen, is there anything else that I haven't asked you about as yet, Simon, that you think is important um, in terms of new ideas, new propositions or anything that's exciting you that uh, we should uh, talk about? I think, Paula, we've covered all the ones that are making the most sense to certainly to our team at the moment. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I'm sure there'll be another one tomorrow, though. So uh, I'll I'll let you know because (laughs) they're appearing. They're appearing every day. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Well, we do follow each other very closely on LinkedIn, Simon. So I'll certainly be paying close attention. And as and when anything just uh, pops up, we'll make sure to get you back on the show. So with that said, I want to say a huge thank you, Simon, again, uh, for coming on at such short notice this week. Um, after all of your travels, sharing all of your wisdom and insights, where's the best place for people to find you? Is it LinkedIn if they want to connect with you? Yeah, as always, uh, as with yeah. you too, I suspect, Paula, LinkedIn's the best place to go and uh, you'll find links off to our various websites and ventures there. So if we can be useful, we're very happy to. Great. And I'll make sure to link to both Beyond and to your own personal LinkedIn profile, of course, in the show notes. So with that said, Simon Rolls, Managing Director at Beyond. Thank you so much from Let's Talk Loyalty. Thank you, Paula. This show is brought to you by the Australian Loyalty Association, the leading organization for loyalty networking and education in Asia Pacific. Their International Virtual Loyalty Conference will take place on the 25th of August 2022. Register now to hear global experts discuss current trends in loyalty marketing. There will be fantastic networking opportunities, questions and answers, gamification and great prizes to be won. Visit AustralianLoyaltyAssociation.com to find out more. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Loyalty. If you'd like us to send you the latest shows each week, simply sign up for the Let's Talk Loyalty newsletter on letstalkloyalty.com and we'll send our best episodes straight to your inbox. And don't forget that you can follow Let's Talk Loyalty on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And of course, we'd love for you to share your feedback and reviews. Thanks again for supporting the show.